0: everybody i am here once again with dan mons what's up man how you doing yeah it's good uh how you going bob good it's uh very early it's uh i'm here with my coffee you're there with your uh with your beer i'm very jealous i got uh, too much to do to have a beer with you today otherwise i would have absolutely loved to but i guess we should probably open this by just politely reminding everybody that uh if if you know a flat earther you might want to let them know that there's not a global conspiracy that stops me from having a beer with Dan. The Earth's just freaking round.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty light here, but uh, and it's also very hot here.
0: Yeah, and it's freezing here, which is hysterical. So, hopefully the coffee in my giant-ass hoodie will, uh, will assist with this, but... Uh, So I- I've been wanting to have another one of these chats with you for a while now, just because I've been getting back into doing podcasting with people like this. And uh, I really enjoyed our chat the first time. And so did a lot of my very, um, let's say, overly critical nerd friends really enjoyed our first chat yeah, as was- well. So you got the... You got props from everybody. Uh, it's just really the time the time difference. But now I wanted to make sure we did this because of your latest invention, which I'm clearly giddy over based on how excited I got That's in great. the video. But uh, retro NAS. So I guess um, I guess we should back up for a moment and just go back to how the heck do you know so much about Linux and are able to make something like this that everybody in the community could just use.
1: Yeah, so my career background, I guess, goes way back with Linux. Um, I've been working in all sorts of fields, uh, like media, VFX, uh, architecture. I'm doing a lot of contracting now for high-performance compute, supercomputers and that sort of stuff. So a lot of uh, Linux-heavy uh, industries that I've been working for. Um, and a lot of them, too, using Linux as glue. Um, and that's kind of where the background for RetroNAS came from, Um you know, like if there were different systems in different parts of businesses and they needed to communicate um, and there was, you know, either vendor software was really expensive. Like to to make, you know, product A talk to product B would cost you tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. Um, You know, just it got too much. So a Linux box in the middle, uh, a little bit of open source software that made them sort of talk to each other. And next thing you know, things are things are communicating. So that was kind of the many years of background that led to the idea of RetroNAS, which was, you know, uh, after seeing a lot of people for a lot of years uh, fumble with storage or try home NAS solutions where um, either they were too difficult or they were pushing ahead, they were starting to use protocols that were too new and they were leaving old stuff behind. Um, You know, sort of all that kind of just fell together uh, as a product that I thought I could do something, build something.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. and it's. But, I mean, you do go a little farther. Because, like, the, you know, I was born and raised in the DOS world, so that's the only analogies I could make to that, is that, you know, uh, my first computers didn't have hard drives. You had to just boot and type everything in manually each time. And then anybody who wanted to stick with it graduated to some kind of batch files. I mean, nerds were always, uh, gaming nerds were always forced to do that with the auto-exec batch file to load up your Sound Blaster drivers. But they kind of took off from there in, in the IT world. But there's there's always a line that's crossed where are you writing software or are you just, you know, dicking around with uh, with batching the operating system? And you definitely have software experience too. I, I do not. Uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> I guess so. Like, I mean, you know, my job is officially sort of systems integrator, systems administrator kind of thing. But uh, that world, especially in Linux, does force you to write a bit of code. Um, you know, automation is everything now. That's, you don't, there's nothing you don't automate anymore. So a lot of the, the background to RetroNAS are just automation tools that I'm using to sort of glue bits of open source together so yeah, it's kind of a a half-half project, I wouldn't call it a software development project, but it kind of is but it kind of isn't, yeah, it's an integration project, Mm. I don't know, lots of bits and pieces there
0: Yeah, so uh, I tried to to structure the video in a way where it's like anybody could just watch it and get it. But I think a lot of people, I think the people that will be more confused by the video are people with technical knowledge. I think like the general, like I know how to build a computer public will be like, okay, cool. We get to run something on top of something that has the software. But from from more of an IT perspective on things, RetroNAS is basically just protocols running in the background mixed together in a wrapper that allows you to point it to different things so i get i mean that's probably a shitty no, no, explanation maybe you want <laughs> to just you do the explanation well
1: <laughs> uh, you know i guess um different operating systems and different tools over the years have all had different requirements when it comes to how they transfer data back and forth so um you know linux or the open source community i guess it's not even really linux um, these things have sort of been developed over years so whether it's something like the Samba project, um, which was sort of the the thing that blew open the SMB protocol, which is the protocol that most, uh, you know, it started in DOS with Landman, and then it moved on to Windows, went through Windows NT, and then into what we know as, you know, XP 2000, those sorts of era systems. Um, you know, open source researchers did a lot of uh, reverse engineering and open sourcing those standards back in sort of the dark old days, you know, when Microsoft were the bad guy. Um and because of that, those tools have had you know decades of of people using them uh, in anger. So, whether it's that, whether it's like Net Talk for the AFP stuff, so for the old Apple stuff, whether it's web stuff, FTP stuff, you know, whether it's stuff that has been sort of Unixy forever, or stuff that's been Windowsy that Unix and Linux have adopted, all those tools exist and. I guess the challenge is configuring them, right? Like, they're a pain in the ass to configure. Mm -hmm. Um, Even for techie people, (laughs) they can be really problematic. So, you know, just lumping all these things together and having a Swiss Army knife of storage options was kind of what I wanted, something that would suit everyone. Um, You know, and and console stuff is definitely a big part of it, and that's, that's half the picture, I guess. The other half, obviously, is all the retro computing stuff that I want to do with, too, so... Um, it it's obviously mm. young um and there's only a few things really on the on the giant list of stuff that I actually want to get through um but even though even with that I think it's it's there's still a lot of stuff that it can do already
0: yeah you know um uh, one of the things that I, I didn't do the I didn't make the best point of of highlighting in the video because once again I just didn't want to confuse people I wanted to get hit that like 10 minute sweet spot of this is what it is and if you like it cool and if you don't care fine but this isn't just a network share and i think that's you know that's one kind of part of what i meant by maybe people with it knowledge might be like so RetroNAS is a project that creates a network share. I could right-click on my drive and do that right from Windows. What do we need this for? And while, yes, it does do that, there's it, it's way deeper than that. So you have, I guess, the one, that I, one thing that I know enough about to confidently speak in is that you load the original SMB protocol on there, which, yes, it's unsecure and it's unsafe and their security nerds' heads are going to be exploding now, except remember that the point of this is to send people to stream your ROMs, not to have your you know your tax information on the same drive or something but you open up the older protocols so that things like playstation 2 could connect directly to it and that's what i was missing the two things i was missing when i tried it myself was making sure smb1 was enabled properly because in windows you could do it but there's always a thing where you know there's always a trick you know yeah. Bill Gates but um, but it's also the file structure as well that it's looking at so it creates everything in a way where you just click on PS2 and drop your ISOs yep. in
1: yeah so I guess like those older protocols have been slowly deprecated by different companies which is a good thing mind you right like for for regular home users mm-hmm. for business users uh, that should be happening they should be getting rid of those uh, older protocols because they're they're not secure um, but yeah definitely for, for home users you know um, it's like the argument of, of having everything encrypted all the time. But if you're at home playing with retro computers, does it really matter? Do you need everything encrypted? So that's kind of the idea with this. I'm trying to open up all of these really legacy protocols. Um, and even before SMB1, right? So SMB1 uh, mm-hmm. in the form that um, OpenPS2 Loader knows about is really like, I think, the third or fourth iteration of you know, what used to be a thing called LAN Manager uh, and then some other protocols in there called NTLM and you know a family of, of encryption and whatnot. So that goes way back to like uh, MS-DOS file sharing days um, and that sort of era. So I open up all those protocols right back to that. And and yeah, you can do it well, you can't do Landman in, in Windows 10, but you can certainly do SMB1 but like you mentioned, there's a mm-hmm. lot of stuff in about. Like you've got to there's registry hacks and there's things you've got to change and more recently I know Windows 10 uh, resets that on certain security updates, so as updates roll out yeah. down the track you're gonna to have to keep uh undoing those changes or redoing them on your side undoing what microsoft have have blocked and again, I understand why Microsoft are doing that like it's a good thing that they're doing that for most people, but yeah, if you've got a lot of retro stuff lying around, it's a real pain and really, like you know open p s two load is not that retro like it's not sort of eight sixteen bit console retro so You know, it's kind of annoying that even that generation is already losing out without something to support it.
0: Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be a good solution. Uh, I think the other thing that I didn't cover in the video that I wanted to just ask you about directly because your answer is going to be better than mine is in the situation of somebody's running like a Synology NAS or, um, or, or any other device, like uh, I know Ed from you know Space Invader One was looking into possibly making an Unraid Docker for it, which I'm crossing my fingers on. But um, for all of that stuff, how exactly does that work? So it's is it the Linux equivalent of install, you know, running installers for all of those protocols, creating a share on your existing NAS drive, and you know, just creating a folder on it and pointing everything there.
1: Yeah, so it would it would probably end up being, I mean there's a lot of sort of it depends kind of answers that would come out of it. One of the big things is uh when you've got two protocols that do the same thing that use the same ports. So for example, say you had a, a um an Unraid or a TrueNAS freeNAS type solution um and they had SMB running already and you wanted to keep that. That's your that's your like secure main um SMB area and then you want to run Retronas. What do you do? Um, There's a couple of ways around it. Um, It would probably involve, you know, a second IP on the machine or something like that. So one listens on one IP, one listens on the other IP. It might have to be something like that, or it might just be a matter of, um, I mean, the other thing is that RetroNAS, because it uses SAMBA, the open source SMB stack, SAMBA will try to connect at the most secure option that is available at both ends. So it'll auto-negotiate. Um, so in one of my videos, I demonstrate it. If you connect in via a Windows 10 or Windows 11 machine, that will connect in at. So Windows 11 uses SMB 3.11, the latest version of the SMB protocol, and you'll see that Retronas will connect at that, and it'll do full packet signing and all that kind of stuff. So it, Retronas and Samba specifically, it's not something I do; it's what the Samba stack does. It will try and always connect at the highest security protocol. So in the case of some of those things, it might be you know uh, potentially. You can turn off the SMB that's included with the NAS and just run SMB via RetroNAS inside the container. I I really think it's going to be, because it's so flexible and because there's so many options and so many use cases, there might be a little bit bit of that complexity around it really depends on who's using it for what. Um, But I mean, Mm. you know, I'm hoping to get a lot of feedback from people too as to what the more common use cases are. Um, and then just tailor images for those people. So, you know, there will always be a nerdy version available for anybody who just wants to go crazy and do whatever they want to do. But if there's overwhelming screaming from people that they want a specific setup that's really easy, uh, you know, I can make something um, that's way more pre baked and ready to roll uh, for whatever people are doing with it, whether it's, uh, you know, Unraid or TrueNAS or, you know, any of the other Synology type stuff that's out there. Um, you know, mm. whether they want VMs whether they want docker containers whether they want images wh- whatever it is that people want we can build that kind of stuff it's pretty easy
0: yeah i mean it's my it's always my approach in situations like this to to have the community kind of jump in and help because uh, and I mean obviously mean this with all the respect in the world, but I I would rather not see you waste your time on stuff that plenty of other people could do. I want to see you spend your time on stuff that you are the expert in that you could add more than everybody else to because you're the creator of the project, you understand how all the software works. So that's kind of why I was I was very happy to hear Ed was gonna take a look at it because he's already an unraid expert and you know, you already laid the groundwork, so having him build the container uh, so that way, maybe it does just sit in its own container, and that way it, all the protocols don't affect anything else. But you know, that way he could take that on, so you don't have to sit there and then go through all of the Unraid documentation and figure out all of its little quirks. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of hoping this really is a community project where people will just start stepping up and being like, "Hey, I'm good at this. I could add that for you." So yeah, absolutely. We'll see, I mean, you
1: know, like the the way that Sam is configured is all done through. So there's a, a bit of software that runs over the top of all this called Ansible, um, which is just a configuration management tool. That's kind of the, the magic source. Um, and we use that in Linux land, especially in professional scenarios where we want to configure lots of machines. So if you're working for a company like, I don't know, um, you know, a big netflix type company who's got millions and millions of nodes around the planet, you don't want to be logging into each one of these doing things. So Retronas uses the mm. same tools that, that those sorts of companies would use to just automatically configure things in a given way. So... If you dive into the the Ansible code that I've written, it spells out really clearly what I'm doing. So, whether you know if the if the Unraid community either want to steal my config and use that directly um, in uh, their tools, so that they don't even have to really use the full stack, they can do that. If they just want to build containers, they can do that. Like there's heaps of options there for on their side to do really whatever they want to do in whatever way they feel is the easiest way to do it.
0: Hmm. And you you made the joke about steal the code, but do you, uh, this is a hundred percent open source. Yeah, yeah. And which which license did uh, you I've use? Got the MIT
1: one? license on this one. Normally, I'm a big GPL fanboy, okay. but um, you know, there's philosophical arguments always about how free is free. Um, so the the MIT license is probably, I think, one of one of the least restrictive and and legally binding least restrictive, if that makes sense. So no one can question how free it is um yeah so right
0: you, isn't it the mit license basically do whatever you want with it but it's not my fucking problem exactly you, wrong. You, you can't
1: sue me but <laughs> okay. um, you can do whatever the hell you like right you don't, you don't have to attribute me you don't have to you can sell it i don't care like it there's do whatever you want really it's it's pretty much as open as it, as it gets
0: well i do hope people jump on this because while you and i have talked about very short-term editions that you know i already have parts and route mm. to start testing and we've talked about slightly longer term Far in the future, if this really does take off, I could completely see it being like an Unraid for retro nerds who want to run their pre-configured retro OS you know, VMs on there, and you know, like I could, I could absolutely see this being something that you know many years down the line become becomes its own beast altogether or or once again also grows parallel as an unraid docker as you know just a very basic command line thing added to a you know a synology NAS or something like that but i i do see potential for for so many things yeah definitely i
1: think like one of the one of the things that really got me thinking probably six months back i was looking at um retro man cave neil from retro man cave his setup yeah so yeah great channel watch a lot of his stuff um, and he was building a like a museum, an interactive museum. Um, I guess unlucky timing for him with COVID and everything. It's probably hard to get people in there. But that's what he was building. Um, and it sort of got me thinking. I, I have I've dealt with sort of museum preservation groups here in Australia. Um, there's a couple in Europe that I dealt with. With um, on my website, I've got some stuff on how to run. Native emulators inside your browser so the code actually executes inside your browser and you can run emulators through the browser so the same sort of stuff that archive.org do with their tools so I was in contact with a couple of uh, preservation groups in Europe who were doing using that documentation that I wrote to do those sorts of things and it kind of it dawned on me that there are more and more places building now that have like a wide array of retro stuff so you know different Mm -hmm. to I guess like I want to appeal to everybody I'm not trying to exclude this group or exclude that group but you know there are there are gamers who want to play their favourite system that's cool right like you know maybe NAS doesn't even suit them if they've got one system then sure use an SD card don't worry about it but if you've got two or three systems and you want to share ROMs uh, if you've got um, you know, a lot of one type of system. Like, that's a big one, right? Like, if you've got, say, for some reason, you've got three or four PlayStation 2s or PlayStation 3s or Xbox 360s, all these things supported by RetroNAS. Um, you know, the most recently I got uh, Nintendo 3DS stuff working. So you can, uh, RetroNAS will generate a QR code and let you scan that with a 3DS and install games on your 3DS. So say you've got a few of those lying around for whatever reason, whether you've just got friends over, whether you're running one of these weird museum thingies. Um, it starts to become really useful to have everything in one spot that you can access over however many different protocols you need to access that thing over. Um, so you know it's not it's not that you have to go and tweak your Amiga to be able to use SMB, like it's just I oh, will look I can fire up a web browser on my Amiga, pull the same files off that I put there from my Windows 95 machine. So you can start to get to those sort of silly scenarios where anybody can do anything with any system no matter what they've got doesn't matter if it's computer or console so that's kind of the the desire is to make that you know particularly for collectors for anyone running these small sort of boutique museums anything like that right down to people who literally just want a simple solution to play games i want to try and cover all of that if i can
0: yeah and it's funny i've talked to a bunch of non-technically oriented people about this project and i was kind of like all right, well, you know, it's all of your stuff in one place, but like, hear me out, think about this. And like, I didn't even get past the second sentence. And they're like, holy crap. So I could do this and I could do that. And I could do that. And I'm like yeah you get it and they're like yeah why, why wouldn't I get it I'm like okay I was I was really afraid this would be a project where people would be like where nerds would be like it's a network share I don't give a shit and non-nerds would be like I'm not setting up a, a full server in mm. my house and the people that I've spoken to neither of those things have ever come up it is not no one uh, no one that I've to- talked to visualized it that way which is a very good thing yeah so. definitely
1: you know the keeping those options open even on the hardware side right like whether it's a Raspberry Pi whether it's a, a uh, existing NAS that you've got whether it's a junker computer whether it's a virtual machine like just giving people as many options as possible because especially now right we're in the middle of the silicon shortage and it sucks like nobody can get gear to mm. do anything so what have you got lying around that you can throw this crap on and make work and uh, you know and without trying to beat the open source drum too much right like that's that's why i love linux you can you can run it on anything there's a a book you can buy called uh, "How to Install Linux on a Dead Badger," which I think is the, the funniest book ever. It's, it's a joke, <laughs> clearly, but I mean that's kind of the point, right? It'll run on anything. So what what have you got lying about? Put it on that, and that becomes your your central store for all your other old crap, um, you know. And it's all super COVID-safe. You can sit at home and tinker with crap that you've got already. You don't have to buy stuff. Um, you know, have have a bit of fun with old computers while uh, while you're in lockdown or something.
0: Yeah, absolutely you know and uh, you know talking about lockdown and not being able to to communicate except over the internet another you know future thing i could envision this being is like central nodes for linking different people's networks together because creating vpns especially through your router it's stuff that like your average person doesn't want to have to deal with even a lot of you know my myself and my fellow nerds are like man I don't want to open this up and then like forget to turn it off and have an open uh, port going into my network. Whereas you know, I could s- totally see that being integrated into this where you pull up the um, you know, I-, I call it a GUI, but it's sort of a GUI that you have there, but you know whatever, the the graphic interface and you know, the open port or you know, connect to whatever and then play your games across the internet with people. Stuff like uh, the stack smashing, I believe it was the- like the Tetris across yep. the internet. Stuff like that and then when you're done, just Turn it off. So number one, the the insecure, if you want to call it that, port was only open for the Game Boy, and it doesn't matter if somebody finds some kind of exploit to that because when you're done, you just turn it off and you're good to go. So just don't don't do your taxes on your Game Boy through the through the protocol. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> And
1: there, it's all stuff that I want to have a look at too. Right? Like there's there's a whole bunch of different uh, projects, open source projects that people have got going to do that sort of stuff. Um, I came across one the other day that looked at um, linking you know, X, original Xboxes uh, over um, the internet using a whole bunch of different port forwarding things. There's the, um, the Dream Pi project, the Dreamcast stuff, where people are doing the, the dial up modem uh, through a Raspberry Pi out to the internet or out to private servers, so that's on my list of things to have a look at as well. Um,
0: and that's just, uh, people would get those things that are designed for fax machines that's telephone to IP protocol, right? And then... It's actually
1: really fascinating. It's so much simpler than that. Uh, the the Pi is really, really clever. So what it does is it, it the modem on the Raspberry Pi uh, listens as a serial device, and you get another modem from another device that expects a dial tone. Um, and they, with a 9-volt battery and a little bit of a circuitry in the middle they literally just shove dial tone from one to the other so it doesn't go over any phone system it doesn't actually go through a VoIP system through a phone system it's literally just two modems talking to each other the Raspberry Pi side is just lying to the other side saying, yeah, yeah, it's totally a dial tone, trust me and the other side goes, sure, whatever and just does what it does so it's, it's a super clever bit of like low-tech, high-tech if you will Um, that manages to do that. And then there are people who've managed to get it working with like old clamshell MacBooks and things like that. So um, it's all on my list to have a look at that kind of stuff. That works doubly too, because then as soon as that stuff works, there's uh, PPP sessions that link up. That means you get an IP over this. That means that now you can use through a dial-up modem RetroNAS as as a file-sharing device. So it's not just something that can be used with a, a Dreamcast for games, it now becomes a, uh, I've got a an old laptop, it's only got a modem port in it, I can use that modem port to connect to my RetroNAS and grab files off it, or grab a BIOS off it, or mm. know, all those sorts of things so, um, yeah, all these tools are like really multi-useful uh, in surprising ways, I think, and, and I mean again, this is all the yeah. open source community right this is all i haven't invented any of this i'm just gluing it together other people are doing these really cool projects that hopefully i can integrate into this thing and and just make it this big swiss army knife
0: yeah i, I really hope everybody um everybody embraces the open source part because uh, you know there have been those this pretty vocal and in, in public instances over the years where people decided that maybe Oh, I, I shouldn't have open sourced this, uh, you know, uh, or I open sourced it, but I, I really just uh, want to be the only person that works on it. And it's like, that's not what this is about yeah. at all. And it's not that's not the majority, by the way, the majority of people like my favorite was Renee from DB Electronics, you know, opens up his web browser one day and sees that a company had just made a whole run of one of his open source projects. And they're selling it at a reasonable price. And he, you know, he's zooming in on the pictures, and he's like, "It looks like it's built well." I'm like, "So you pissed that they stole your design?" And he's like, "They didn't steal it. It's <laughs> yeah. open source. Yeah. And now I could buy one for cheaper than it would have cost me to order the parts to make one." Yeah. <laughs> so, the, you know, that's that's you know, it's a fun example. But that's the majority of people in the scene really are that cool about this stuff because that's why they wanted to open yeah, source yeah. it. You well,
1: know? Look, I definitely think, um, you know, it, it does come down to there's a lot of personal choice in it. I don't ever like, I'm a huge open source fan, but I would never push open source on somebody else. Like, it's up to them to make that choice for themselves. But I think, you know, there is... Hardware is a tricky one because I think, I don't know, maybe it's just because I've been in the software world my whole life, I undervalue the the difficulty in software. But I look at hardware design and think, these guys are magic. Like, I don't understand how anyone designs hardware. It's all alien and weird to me, so... (laughs) You know, if someone designed a hardware thing and open-sourced it, I, I really admire that. I think that's pretty cool to do that. That's like a next level up. But again, if you if you had a product that you... It cost you a lot of money to make and you wanted to make some money back, right? You, you dropped a lot of cash on, you know, especially pre fpga it was it's really difficult to design chips and circuits and things like that and if you screw up and you've ordered a hundred of these things it's going to cost you a fortune so fair enough if people want to make money off that and you know maybe close it for a bit and open it later or you know whatever whatever they're doing mm-hmm. you know I'm, I'm cool with that but you know literally i think the the important point of retro NAS is that um all the projects i'm using are open source projects and i'm just Gobbling all those together, gluing them together, configuring them in ways that are compatible with as many things as I can, and, and desperately trying to make that as easy as possible for as many people as possible. So that's kind of the goal. But yeah, look, I'm not I'm not putting the hard work into the protocols themselves. That that's been done for like the last you know 20 years of of people, lots of people working really hard on that kind of stuff. Um, I'm, yeah, just gluing these things together.
0: Awesome. Um. So, just to bounce back to the DreamPie yep. for a second, have you gotten that working? Have you tested out on? I mean, not via RetroNAS, just DreamPie in general. Have you used that project? No, before?
1: I. I'm not a big Fantasy Star Online fan. That seems to be the big sort of community behind that. Um, and that's both, from what I can tell, it's both GameCube and Dreamcast. That seems to be big communities behind those. Mm. I, I've got a couple of GameCubes, but no broadband or modem adapters for them. They're pretty expensive, so. I'm hoping to either borrow one, I've put the word out on a local forum that I'm on, to, um, hopefully I can borrow one, there's a couple of GameCube fans on there, or, I don't know, I'd love to see somebody design one, um, you know, back to the whole hardware is magic kind of thing, <laughs> if someone can make one. Yeah. But yeah, the um, I have ordered all the parts I need for the Dreamcast one, so that's on its way, a slow boat from China, hopefully it'll arrive here in the next month or so. Um, and then I can start fiddling with that. Uh, And again, that one's multi-useful because I'll also be testing a bunch of old PCs and Macs, uh, dialing out some DOS machines as well. I've got the equipment for... It's not gaming-related, but I've got uh, a whole bunch of RS-232 serial adapters to make null modem cables. So that's all like Amiga, Atari ST, old DOS PCs, that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff, getting them either sharing files directly or on the internet. Um, and then obviously there's another project that I've integrated in RetroNAS called Web1. Uh, I like that one a lot. Um, it's, a, it's a proxy, so it sits in the middle. Uh, you point your really old web browser at it, and then it goes out to the internet. It'll fetch your website, and it'll strip all the CSS out. It'll strip all the JavaScript out. It'll strip all the HTTPS out <laughs> and just give you sort of like a, a plain text text kind of version as much as it can back to your browser. Um, so again, that's another.
0: So that's for people that have like retro yep. computers that are, they manage to connect to the network, but they uh, what do they they set the proxy to retronas, and then that does yep. the translation. So you're you're still just going to like retrorgb.com, but it's the proxy set, so it does all that. That is absolutely yeah, hysterical. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And, hey, well, the- uh, I'm looking forward yeah, to seeing that. Yeah, I mean
1: that. the the well it works it's in there now so you can you can test it out there and uh, you can test it through a VM too. So if you just like one of the easiest ways to do it is just to to load up a Windows 95 VM, use Internet Explorer whatever four or five that came with that uh, and then try and browse regular websites without the proxy. See what that looks like. It sucks. Uh, and then try it with the proxy and see how much works and how much doesn't. But you know the the somewhat practical use not just you know for lols and having a laugh, but uh, you know you can browse archive.org, download legitimate software from archive.org. You know maybe you need a USB driver, or maybe you need a you know something, there's some bit of bespoke hardware or a game that you want to get or whatever. Um, you can now download that direct, uh, particularly from you know big archive sites all uh, the abandoned sites, all that kind of stuff. You can get to those fairly easily. So you know your other option, of course, is download it from a a modern computer, drop it on RetroNAS, and then smb it down to your windows 95 machine that works too or ftp or http or whatever it is that you want to uh you know there's probably three or four ways i can think of that you can get files off retro to a windows 95 device but you know the further back you go in time the the fewer protocols are available to old systems uh but yeah certainly just trying to trying to maximize that spread of things that can talk to it and weird stuff you can do
0: yeah, so for the retro computer stuff, I have zero of it here other than maybe a VM I have on my hard drives or something. I think I a while back I somebody was um, put together a pack of like every version of Windows, you know, up to like uh, ME or 2000 or something like that. And so that that's my only access at the moment. So could you talk a little bit more about some of the retro PC stuff that you've integrated in cuz I thought that was really cool as well.
1: Uh, yeah, so I guess uh, Talk is the fun one for me. Like, I, 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 these days I don't use a lot of Mac stuff, but there was, a, there was a period in my life where I was a bit of a Mac fanboy for a minute. Um, and I guess nostalgically, too, I like the design of that, like, uh, OS 9, even maybe OS 8 era of Mac. I've, I've got myself a, um, one of the old CRT iMacs, um, which I I, mm. know, I think they're just the best looking machine ever made because a because it's got a whopping big CRT on it and I love CRTs but uh, b I just I love the aesthetics of it so um, one of the challenges with really old Mac OS is that they use protocols before TCP/IP um, and that can get really challenging so uh, Netatalk comes in two flavors so that's the open source stack of uh, protocols that support file sharing over Mac. NetATalk 3 is the current one that's in production. So if you just if you jump on any Linux machine and say, hey, install NetATalk, it'll put NetATalk3 on there. Works really well for uh, I think Apple finally deprecated um, what they call Apple Talk or AFP, Apple Filer Protocol. They deprecated that in the brand new Mac OS. So if you get the new whatever the big the big sur or whatever it is and onwards, that's that won't work anymore. But your OS X machines from ten point two to ten point fifteen, they all spoke apple talk over tcp ip so did os9 but you go back before then and they do what they call apple share over apple talk so apple talk there they're referring to not like a a high level protocol but that's the actual protocol that is sharing at a network level so i don't know if you remember ipx as a network standard pre-TCP, mm-hmm. so yeah, Apple, there was Apple Talk, IPX, TCP, and a few other whole bunch of different ones at the time. Obviously, Ethernet won the day because it was on the internet and everybody used sorry, not Ethernet, IP won the day because that was on the mm-hmm. internet. Um, and it's good, don't get me wrong, like, it's a good protocol. It has its negatives, but generally it's really good over long distances and crappy links, which is why it's so popular, Wi-Fi especially. Um, but yeah, so Apple Talk works without ip so the earliest mac i've managed to make it work on is an apple 2 um, yeah so that's <laughs> that's working um, the the actual configuration isn't in retro as yet i'm just i'm working on that um, but yeah there's a net 2 option so there's two options in the menu there's two and three um, if you choose two that'll definitely work all the way back to os system i've tested system 7 and it works i don't know about system 6 um, but the the new one that's coming out will go all the way back to Apple 2GS running gsOS, which was a special version of OS System 7, um, and that will share files. Um, there is even a way, apparently, to boot an Apple 2GS raw, so no disks in it, no nothing. Like Say, say you've, you've acquired yourself an Apple 2GS um, and you don't even have floppy drives with it, like no OS or anything like that. It's that, it's that old cold boot problem right like i need to put an os on this floppy drive to boot that computer to put an os on this floppy drive right you can't get around that so by all accounts you can network boot these things feed it a rom over apple talk write that rom to the floppy disk and then that floppy disk becomes your boot disk so that's another process i've got to go through and test uh but i'm 99 percent sure that that will work uh based on the testing that i've done but again that's all like the open source community there i i wish i could remember his name the there's one person who's essentially revived the talk to codebase just recently, um, probably six months ago, um, single-handedly got that project back up and running, integrated a whole bunch of community patches into the old codebase, made it compile on modern computers, and then pushed that forward. So, you know, huge props to that person. Without that person, this wouldn't exist. But uh, what it means is that you can go really far back with old Macs. So that's that's one thing I definitely want to get all the serial null modem stuff working so that'll then start to integrate yeah Amiga um, and probably Atari ST I'm pretty sure they've all got PPP drivers so you can get internet access out of a serial cable um, and then on the RetroNAS side you can either use a USB to serial so the 9-pin the RS-232 cables um, and on a Raspberry Pi I've just bought two or three different brands from China they have arrived um, the GPIO headers on the Raspberry Pi um, four of those will work like um, uh, TTL uh, so they'll talk TTL serial mm. into an adapter and that adapter will turn it to RS-232. Now they cost me like 40 cents to buy those um, which is pretty crazy so
0: it's the one that's just the cable, right? It's just, It looks just like a cable, but there's a little chip in there yeah, doing there's the a translation. Couple, I think I have like three yeah, of those. Yeah, there's a few of there. those too.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, mine's kind of blown out. It looks like it's a hand-soldered thing or something. Like it's it's pretty macro, but you can get them really tiny as well. So um, yeah, having that there means that, you know, that opens that up to a whole bunch of different computers. Because I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that I have no idea about. All sorts of weird and wonderful computers. Um, but you know, RS-232 serial talking ppp over that that was pretty stock standard for like a whole decade or more so anything that talks that will probably be able to file share somehow back to retro nas so you know i've got tftp ftp http like they're the really old school sort of protocols and then you know bigger ones like uh, nfs and smb and those sorts of things so um, even getting into 90s unixes i've got a couple of mates who still have sgi silicon graphics machines lying around that they because they're all vfx artists so they had these (laughs) machines way back in the day um you know working on on some pretty crazy films back in the i guess late 90s early 2000s early days of vfx um and you know they they keep whinging to me that they can't use these machines and they love them and they want to be able to do stuff with them so you know keeping them in the back of my mind too hopefully we'll get some stuff working for them so that their old computers can get back to life and and get connected to the internet and do some fun stuff
0: weren't weren't those old silicon graphics computers like ridiculously expensive because they were the ones that designed all the 3d stuff crazy they were
1: crazy expensive um you know like i i mean i was i was working in media 2001 2002 and we were buying workstations then for like an average sort of Low-end, low-spec 3D. Like we weren't even doing VFX. We were doing 3D fly-throughs and things like that. And those machines were clocking in at what, like, 15 to 20 grand for a for a decent 3D workstation. So then, you know, you go back five years before then, and you're looking at those high-end uh, Silicon Graphics machines um, or the media machines. So Silicon Graphics made a machine called the Tesro, um, which is an awesome-looking thing. It looks like a big from the front, kind of like a four-leaf clover, but it's like long. This st- not quite cylindrical. It's like a cube with cylinders on the edges. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, And it's purple, which is awesome. Like, bring back purple computers. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, that thing would have been... You'd fill that full of SCSI drives and high-end fiber cables and things. And, you know, it's it's a 40 grand computer You know that you'd use for three years on one film and then throw in the bin. So, um, yeah, like bringing that stuff back to life sounds pretty cool if I can do that.
0: That's so fascinating. When I was a kid, so I was probably... 11 years old at this point so early 90s um I I wanted to go I moved with my grandparents who lived in the ghetto but I wanted to like go mow lawns and stuff to try to make money to buy a Sega Genesis so like you know there's like lawns with like three three pieces of grass and I'm knocking on all the doors and one of the people who's the there's like one of the only lawns in the neighborhood and the grass is three feet tall and I was like I could do that for you um and The guy ended up never paying me. What a scumbag. I did it, like, every week for a month and a half, and then he never paid me, so I just let it grow again. But uh, he invited me in. His son was a little younger than me, and he showed me this computer, and he showed me what he was working on. And he did graphics for things like Star Trek The Next Generation, where you see it flying through space and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, man, could I have that software? And, like, he looks at me, and he's like, well, I could copy you the software but it won't even load because you need one of those and there was like it looked like a computer plugged into a computer and I think that was the external graphics card that they had, like the the processing unit for it. And uh, I mean that, that must have been I mean this is all going off of memory thirty <laughs> years ago, but I you know, I vaguely remember him saying it was like a twenty thousand dollar thing and uh, and it wasn't his, it was his company's oh, like yeah. so yeah, yeah. and he would just sit at home and make these graphics for these T V shows and stuff like that. So I'd love to see one of those again.
1: Sounds like, uh, yeah, you had a lot of like old HP Unix workstations and stuff back around that era. They were starting to get into that, Um, you know, all running like early versions of X Windows, which is kind of the the precursor of what modern day Linux graphics um, uses under the hood, although that's all. A has changed a lot and B is continuing to change, obviously. Um, But yeah, like all Mm. that old stuff, right? So um, definitely RetroNAS, I've got uh, NFS version 2 working as well which was the first publicly released version of NFS so that will go all the way back to um, Unix System 5 so all your like, really old Sun and HP workstations from the, I'm going to say mid-90s onwards pretty much anything with an Ethernet card in it um, will work so um, one of the challenges actually is once you go back far enough uh, even getting Ethernet is hard Um, there's a lot of proprietary Hmm. uh, connectors in things before then. Like um, I was looking at some old Macs a little while ago and they've got this like weird serial adapter that then converts stuff to Ethernet. And then it's like, I think 10 megabit uh, Ethernet, but you can only get three megabit out of the link and stuff like that. So there's, there's certainly even physical challenges after a while trying to plug things in. So there's definitely on my... Radar to look at that side of Retro as well. What, whatever devices it takes to physically plug things in, um, trying to figure out what to do there. Because you know, having the software is half of it, but if you don't have hardware to physically plug in, it can get a bit tricky.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we we were just talking about, like, the GameCube mm. uh, Ethernet adapter potentially loading software there, but we got to get you one. I think I know somebody will probably just send you oh, there cool. so, just, just to have. Um, and But, I mean, you, we also need somebody to reverse engineer that and build mm. a little Ethernet adapter somehow for the GameCube. Um, and it doesn't really matter how we go about doing that. Maybe it's reverse engineering that. Maybe it's a Wi-Fi adapter. Uh, excuse me, respectfully, I don't really care how it's done as long as, as long as people get through it. But one of the things that um that I, I was really looking forward to to kind of digging deeper in, which I don't even know how how well this would work, but that project that I sent you that basically turned the Pi Zero Two into something that translates networked shared folders to USB. And that's something that I've wanted for over, well over ten years now, it all started when I had a Blu-ray player that could play everything over USB, mm. but it could only read up to eight terab- or up to two terabyte hard drives, and nothing bigger than that. So it's like I would have loved to have had a USB device that I could plug into the network. Back then, Wi-Fi wasn't fast enough. It totally would be now, though. But I'd love to have something like that. Is this? Are you familiar with how that's done? Is this something that's been available for a while? Uh, yeah,
1: again, so this is all getting into hardware stuff that I don't fully know. But I, I do know, like, the ESP32. So that's the thing, if you look at a mm-hmm. GPS control, um, you, you, you stick that right. circuit on top and then you can hit it over Wi-Fi. So that sort of was a bit of a, a game changer, I guess, for, like, um, tinkerers and, and embedded electronics people um because it's it's a known popular chip it can run a whole bunch of code you can write i think you can do a small linux stack for it but you can also just write c code directly for it um and essentially it just glues a serial bus to a wi-fi adapter with a chip that's fast enough to run you know linux junior on it um and so that mishmash of hardware really changed everything and so now pretty much if you look at any kind of um you know, tinkerer hobbyist kind of hardware hacking. Everybody's using these little ESP32s. Um, there's another one that's mm-hmm. like the next model up that's more powerful. I forget what that is. I can't remember the, the, um, the name of it. Um, and now there's a lot of um, risc Five or RISC-V chips that are coming out and they're doing a lot of that sort of thing where it's, it's like the next step up in terms of power. So, yeah, the common element there is that they're all just on a serial bus. So once you're talking serial, as long as your voltages are relatively in spec and you're sending the right kind of serial data, things are, I'm not going to say simple because it's well over my head and how it all works at an actual sort of technical level. Um, But, you know, they're all talking serial, so that's an advantage. So in the same way that you can get a USB device and plug RS-232 out of the end of it because it's all serial, or you can do USB to SATA or SAS or uh, any of those sorts of things because, again, it's all serial. So that's kind of the the beauty of it. As long as they're all serial, they can sort of talk. Um, so, you know, next jump ahead from there, doing something where, um, you know, you, you're talking serial over this bus, out the end of it, you're talking some sort of configured Wi-Fi um, and that goes back to something else. So tiny, tiny little embedded system on there that's running something, some little Linux BSD or C thing, uh, potentially picking up retro and or some other device that's mounting that in and then you can just feed data to that so um you know i see see a little bit of that in the 3d printing kind of uh homebrew area yeah. i'm seeing a lot of people adding wi-fi capabilities to their 3d printers using exactly that kind of tech taking that leap over to you know flash carts and and small embedded systems and you know even old computers um the Commodore 64 you can buy a cartridge that you can plug in the back of your Commodore 64 uh, or maybe it goes into one of the com ports. Um, and it's got an ESP32 hanging off the back of it. So you can do PPP over that. so that's Wi-Fi back to your home router and then your Commodore 64 can get on the internet and go to you know browse BBSs and things like that. So it's, you know that's low spec uh, data traversal. Like it's all sort of you know 9600 board modem kind of speeds. But it can do it, and it's just using this like little two dollar chip hanging off the end of it. So that's got a lot of possibilities. Whether it's fast enough, who knows? But again, if you're talking retro computers, it might be fast enough. And if you're talking use cases like um, you know pushing a very small whatever NES or Super Nintendo ROM to a device that's pretending to be an, a micro SD card, um, you know that's really possible too. So I, I think there's heaps of options. Coming, I
0: think it would be yeah. good for up option- to. Yeah, I think that would even be okay for up to, at least up to DVDs because the Wi-Fi transfer speed unless you have shit Wi-Fi is going to be faster than your in IDE bus that you know especially with retro consoles cuz one of the things that I really want to see moving forward is everybody who makes ODEs including a Wi-Fi chip that you could use to access stuff like this or even i would love to see everybody have a connector retro nas button where you just put in your user and password and that's it but like i i think you know and that that project of having wi-fi a wi-fi usb stick let's just say like, I genuinely think that that could be a game changer, not just for retro games, but for, for retro PCs or, or even just for convenience. I mean, how many times, just as you know, as an IT nerd, have you had a family member ask you to fix their computer and then you have to download the Ethernet drivers? It's like, all right, well, how much am I going to do on this computer? How much am I going to download on mine? Let me just keep switching the USB stick back and forth. Like, it would have been way cooler to just plug in that Wi-Fi thing. You know, just make sure the USB driver's loaded, and that's it. Now you can access whatever you want right from there. So I, I think stuff like that is going to be huge, as long as you know, as long as more people get on board and, and get it implemented. Because a lot of the ODES, um, or not a lot of them, but at least the X Station has a Wi-Fi chip in there. But I don't, know, I think it was it that one. No, it was the the. I could be getting it wrong. It's <laughs> early, but I know the Fenrir had it, and uh, Sed is is definitely looking into. To doing st- exactly what we're talking about here, and I really hope that everybody else working on those thinks mm. about it as well. And of course, the you know the Pi Zero thing would would work itself out once they come back down to Earth for yeah. prices. You know, I think I just spent eighty bucks cool. on a kit just so I can get yeah, one yeah. for testing. It's supposed to be a fifteen dollar module with a ten dollar micro SD card. You know, yeah. so look,
1: I, I mean, hopefully, it, it will come down. It's just a matter of when. I think, Um and again, you know, in in the Meantime, hopefully, you know, junk PCs and VMs and Docker containers and things will keep everybody sort of happy for the short term. Um, but yeah, on mm. I guess on the Wi-Fi front, the, the tricky bit there is the um, the latency. So if you've got a particularly fussy console that expects, you know, it doesn't expect data to come in fast, but it expects it to come in um You know, consistently. So it's it's a bit like the whole concept of uh, variable lag, right? Like it's not it's not the lag that kills; it's the difference. Um, So it's it's that kind of concept at a data level um, where it can cause hiccups and things like that. But again, you know, like if these things are orders of magnitude different, if you're talking, you know, uh, like two-speed CD-ROM where I need a three hundred kilobytes per second guaranteed, and I've got Wi-Fi that can do thirty megabytes a second, you know, I I can safely assume that you know that consistency is there and again like if you've got gear that's close enough um i mean just behind me i've got a separate wi-fi router and network just for my old retro games which is this room that i'm sitting in here um so i've got three there's a wall there, there's a wall there. there's a wall there full of retro crap um and it's all like older wi-fi so i've got a separate wi-fi for that so you know having those sorts of things where it's like yeah it's kind of inconvenient because it's you're still having to wire things up but having a wi-fi that's in the middle of that room that services everything in this room consistently, um, you know, that maybe that's an mm. option too for people if, if these, you know, always Wi-Fi devices start uh, getting popular.
0: Yeah. I mean, the other thing too is especially for the Pi to Zero too, but maybe even uh, for some of the ODEs, if the concept is you select your file from the network and it copies it to the micro SD card and launches mm. from there, then it really yep. wouldn't matter past that because it's just, there is no latency because it's there. You would just have to wait for it to copy over the network, which, you know, depending on your network speed, that could be five seconds, maybe maybe a minute if it's a, a DVD or something like that. Well, but I mean, a lot of these things. I think that one's... Yeah, a, a lot of know. these things buffer
1: anyway, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of the flash carts have, there's a yeah. zip file on the SD and it loads into some sort of RAM or, or flash RAM, flash ROM that's sitting there that's a little bit higher speed. Um, and so it's, it's doing some sort of buffer. So yeah, that, that could just be changed from instead of loading over SD it's loading over the network into its little buffer um, so that same sort of you know two second load uh, and then off you go everything from there super low latency and working as expected and then yeah scaling that up right to um, to, to DVD level if you if your buffer is big enough like you know having having a one gigabyte of flash, probably isn't (laughs) that crazy anymore right like that that used to be a crazy concept yeah it's not crazy anymore so if that's your buffer um you know you can buffer a whole cd-rom to that that's a whole playstation game
0: yeah 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 i'd also love to see in the future cricks release like wi-fi versions of the um the portable ones game boy game gear because and have something where you could just go right in the menu and press sync so that way you're still only messing with your ROMs on RetroNAS on your main location, so you don't have to copy and you know, you don't need long fingernails mm. to poke in one of those Terra Onion carts. Like you just whatever it is, right? You just uh you have it all in one place and then you press sync, but both ways. Mm. So it sends your save files to the the central location and pulls any changes that you had. So that way you, you still have all the ROMs on your cart for gaming on the go for your handheld stuff, but you don't have to worry about messing around and you know, and because, and, you know, for you and me, loading up, I mean, you probably have something scripted in, you know, yeah. command line, but I would load up free file sync and press a nice little GUI button where I get to see what files are on both sides, but, you know... This is stuff you and I do every day yeah. for, for other reasons anyway. So people who aren't IT nerds just to turn it on and press a sync button, anybody could do that. Yeah, I mean so... I've got
1: some there's some crazy stuff I've got planned. Um, I'm testing a whole bunch of cloud sync tools. So you can have all your games sitting on OneDrive or Google Drive or whatever and they're loading up on your retro console. So that that works. The tricky bit is making it easy for people to use. Um, so, like you said, like it's it's pretty easy for me to do that kind of stuff. But putting that in a presentable way to people and being secure, because now you're starting to mess with like people's cloud accounts. Like that's something that can't leak out, right? right? So that starts to get a bit tricky. Um, I've got a tool on there. So there's a there's a company I really like, uh, GOG or GOG. Good old games is what that stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sell um, re- mostly retro, they do a, a few console releases every now and then, but it's, it's 99% um, you know, uh, Windows 95, Windows 2000 kind of era games. It's the same company that um, uh, CD Projekt or Project the, the um, Polish company, they did the Witcher series um, and Cyberpunk. Same okay. company owns GOG. Um, so yeah, all DRM-free uh, digital. Um, and because it's DRM-free and because of the way that their system works, uh, and it's working now, you can, you can use RetroNAS to put in your credentials and RetroNAS will store those off to the side. Um, it doesn't actually use your credentials. It, it generates a cookie and stores the cookie off to the side. So your username and password are never stored. Um, the cookie's hidden away, so you can't get to that through a file share or any of the insecure sort of methods that RetroNAS exposes. Um, and then you can hit a button and it'll pull your whole library down. So think of it like um, offline Steam. Um, yeah, so if mm. you, like I've got, I don't know, 30 or 40 games on GOG um, and it's really nice to just hit a button, walk away, come back and they're all synchronized to my Retro NAS, and then I can fire those up on my Windows 95 machines or whatever and play them natively. So that, that's all working too. Um, but yeah, ROM loading from cloud, um, that's kind of something I want to try and make easy as well. I don't, I don't know how many people would like that or use that. Um, but, you know, it might also be an easier way to sort of distribute stuff. Um, but, yeah, who knows, right? Like, there's a lot of possibilities. Just got to try and make it easy uh, for people. That's that's the tricky bit.
0: Yeah, that is by far the tricky part. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very curious to see if somebody's going to step up to the plate, especially when prices come back down to earth and do something like a uh, pie for, you know, eight terabyte USB three combo where everything is pre-configured and all you do is plug it into your network and, and maybe even, you know, hopefully it's, uh, set a password that's somewhat secure. So even if, you know, even if people don't even want to change it, at least it's not one, two, three, four, mm. yep. five, <laughs> same combination. I have in my luggage, <laughs> but plug all that stuff in. I love that fucking movie. <laughs> you plug all that stuff in and uh, and just have it work. So then you open up your, your brow or not even a browser. You just open up your Explorer window or, you know it connect to the network and just start dumping your roms over my only concern is the same problem i have with uh which you know there's no stopping this but i can't tell you how many times i've logged onto a website and one of the banner ads is you know here's here's an eight uh you know eight gigabyte card with every game boy rom on it for 25 dollars. and it's like I that that really pisses me off when i see that because it's just you know most people who do this don't do this because they want to steal they do this because it's like I just want to have a convenient location for all my ROMs so I I am kind of afraid that people are going to start selling you know 8 terabyte hard drives loaded but hopefully we could police our own community and And just call people out when that happens. But there's a big difference between buying a Raspberry Pi connected to a USB hard drive that's got, you know, everything pre-configured. Maybe dump the 240p test suite and some open source stuff on there just to, you know, cave story, whatever else is freeware nowadays, just so people could have something to reference, but not actually, you're not selling the ROMs and you're not selling the software you're just selling the hardware that you've bought with a little uptick for how much time it took you to image and, and configure it. Th- I think it, too,
1: so. um, I don't know I, I feel like a lot of the people, I've got friends who are testing this for me as well as yourself obviously you're testing this for me and a lot of the people who are testing this for me tend to own a lot of like a, a variety of old hardware and I find those people will also have a variety of old software. They're in it for the collection and they're in it for the And you know, and they've spent lots of money over lots of years, right? Like you and I were buying the stuff new as kids, and we're still buying it as adults. So, I I think the community who are sort of maybe interested in retro probably aren't the like you know the dirty ROM sellers. I think they're the kinds of people who, you know, uh, crazy people who are buying legit cartridges to then you know solder on uh, translation chips and things like that. It's that kind of community. Like they're so passionate about the stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think there'll be a lot of good spirit about it.
0: Me too. And I've I absolutely had the experience that very, very often the people who are the most obsessed with downloading every ROM ever also have mm. huge physical collections, still go to local game stores, still go to expos. It's, it's very rare to find the bottom feeder that just goes, oh, I could make some extra dollars off of this by illegally copying an SD card. Mm. Cool, let me do it. And I'm glad that's not the common thing but we we do have to kind of watch yeah. watch out for that but just to once one more time remind everybody in case you're you know walking or driving and half listening people that put together hardware packages with retro nas pre-installed is totally cool because that's not stealing it's open source software and somebody's taking their time to configure it it's just people that would dump full rom sets on it that would be the scummy part
1: yeah absolutely and man I'd, I'd love to see that one day if they ever turned up a, a pre Configured thing that was just ready to rock and roll, you know, Sans roms, obviously, just ready to go. Turn it on and it works. That'd be pretty cool.
0: Agreed. So, what do you think? Uh, what do you think are the aspects of it that you would want help on in the short term? We talked a lot about the longer yep. term stuff, but like you know, in the next month or so, people with Linux knowledge and and people with skills to do this stuff. What do you think would be the first few things that you would? Want uh, help I think. With?
1: straight up just a lot of testing um, like the more people who can because you know, it's always that thing, when you make a tool you use it in the way that you intended it to be made and it takes a lot of people doing stuff with it who don't think like you and finding the edge cases and breaking it, so I'd, I'd love a lot of people just to try it out I think would be the big one um, you know, ideas as well um, like I've I, on my GitHub I've opened up the ideas section so you don't have to go in there and do like uh, nerd level, like you know, uh, pull requests and stuff like that. You can just get in there and start chatting. I've got my uh, Twitter address there too, so if people want to talk to me on Twitter about it. But yeah, if people want to um, just talk to me about it, like if they've got some weird esoteric bit of stuff flying around that they want to work, let me know. And I'll uh, there's an ideas page as well um, in the source. If you look at the source, there's an ideas.md. Click on that, it's just all the stuff that I want to do in the future. So Getting an idea of what people want, testing what's already there, um, you know, different configurations of both the end user stuff. So like, if people have like, I've obviously I've got a fair few consoles and things like that, but I don't have every console ever made of every version, right? So like, you know, I've got like three PlayStation threes, but they're not every model of PlayStation three ever made. So if if people can test more stuff and find out what happens, that'd be really cool. Um, if people are technical um, any help on the software development side would be awesome um, you know I've spoken to you um, about this like uh, you know I'm not a web developer and I'm a, re- I'm a really shitty developer so like if if someone wants to have a crack at a GUI for this like the whole, the whole backend is done in Ansible it does the heavy lifting in terms of actually installing stuff really just putting a GUI over the top of that that like uh, makes that more user friendly. That'd be awesome. Especially, I always emphasize this. If people do GUIs, I, I love web GUIs because if I can if I can control it from my phone, uh, that's awesome. Uh, right. So yeah, that kind of stuff would be. Really so I do want to talk
0: about the yes. GUI for yep. a second. Um, if so, just to put things into perspective, where it is right now as we're recording this, how how this works is after you've installed it. If you follow if you follow my guide to the T or or yours as well. You could bring up your web browser. You type in, you know, retro SMB colon ninety ninety. You log in. You click on terminal, and you hit the up arrow on your keyboard, and that brings up the last command, which is most likely going to be launch retroNAS, and then it shows up with yep. your GUI. So really, once it's installed, and once you know, once you get to that point in, you know, in the video that I released, where it's like, okay. This is you're done. You never need to do this again unless you need to upgrade. But you now you can just use it. It kind of does have a GUI. It's one or two more steps than you would yep. normally have. But ideally, so you know, so if you're afraid of the command line or if you just hate it because you've been using it since birth, like me, uh, it's not bad now. It's not bad at all. But it would be really nice to get to the point where once RetroNas is loaded, so maybe you know, maybe it's. We get a group of people to manage our Raspberry Pi images, just like they do for a lot of other projects, you know, good groups of people that are doing nightly or weekly builds to make sure everything's up to date. So if it's at the point where you image your, you know, your micro SD, you stick it in your Pi, or image your SSD and just stick it in any PC, plug it into your network, and then just go to your browser and type in, you know, Retro NAS, and then have everything through Mm -hmm. the browser. So your phone, your PC, whatever else, you could finish setup, you could, I don't know if storage drives, that would also be a big deal if even you could work mm-hmm. on that right through the same GUI interface. That might be a little rough, But, um, and I do also knowingly want to emphasize the point of this is just... You know, this is just dressing this thing up. It's not changing what it is. It's just putting a fancy dress on it because all the functionality is there. I'm just simply talking about how to get to that functionality. Yeah. So. so, like you said,
1: the GUI is uh, we call it a TUI, a text user interface. So it's not it's not command line, but it's kind of in the middle, right? So um, it uses a bit of software called uh, the the Linux software is called Dialog, and it uses a bit of software called curses. Anybody who's been around Unix and Linux forever knows what those things are. But I guess for people who maybe aren't familiar with that, if you ever used a Raspberry Pi and run the Raspi config command, so that, that's like Raspberry Pi's official documentation on how to do things like uh, set your Wi-Fi region or set your keyboard or any of that kind of stuff. So if you've got the headless or the SSH version or the no GUI version of uh, Raspberry Pi OS, that's the tool that Raspberry Pi OS or Raspberry Pi Foundation themselves use. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not terrible. It's it's like a halfway point between a command line. You, you don't yeah. have to remember anything. The menus are there. You can navigate around and guess and get it right 99% of the time. So that's all kind of cool. Um, the other popular project that uses that same bit of software is a bit of software called PyKiss, um, which I, f- I forget who writes that, but it's a pretty cool bit of software. It lets you do all sorts of, like... Game installs and hacky upgrades of like if you want to test bleeding edge 3D graphics drivers and things like that for your Pi, same pretty much the same thing as what I'm doing. So you download one script off the internet, it installs this thing, and then the TUI comes up, and you just follow your nose uh, through the TUI. So um, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a middle ground for people who suck at programming, <laughs> um, which is why I'm using it. But yeah, like if if anybody wants to have a crack at making a nice uh, web GUI over the top you know, more power to them.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is at the point where I must have installed it, I don't know, 40 times now, just to like, because not only was I running into issues, all right, so when I was doing this stuff, I always want to try what's the most efficient way. So I'm looking through my notes, and I, I ran this command four times. Why, why do I need to run it four times? And it's also funny cause I don't have a deep understanding of what it was I was doing. So I'm going through and I just kept doing it over and over and I found the set of steps where it's the least amount of steps and all you have to do is just look on the screen or look at the, you know, look at the, the page and, You know, read the exact words, type them in and hit enter. Don't make a spelling error and you're done. So you don't actually need to understand what's going on. You just need to be able to look at something and type the same thing. And, you know, even if you're a super slow typer and you used the oldest SD card or spinning hard drive on the planet, we're still talking about maybe a half hour start to finish. If you're just following it and, and stepping up. I mean, I guess if you have a super old drive, maybe an hour, but that's not an hour of work. That's press enter, yeah, yeah. go pour yourself your a beer, style, wait yeah. for it to finish, yeah. come back type of thing. Yeah, so so yeah, I mean, it's it's in a good place now, without a doubt. And the, the only major change I could see in the short term is just how it looks, but not how it functions. So the functionality is there. Um, I mean, a major change for for beginners who are setting this stuff up because that's, you know, that's the point I wanted to make in both videos is that it's a little bit of work now, but it's not like you then have to do this all over again in the future when there's a new version. You just run an updater. And I guess that's another thing that you were talking about, too, is um, different ways to update it, right? Yeah.
1: So at the moment, every time you run it, it'll just pull the latest code. Um, so I guess it's kind of, you know, I would call it sort of a a beta release at the moment. It's about that sort of level of of, um, uh, unlikely-to-breakness. Yeah, so, but yeah, what it'll do is it'll it'll just grab the latest code all the time. Uh, At some point, I'd really like to uh, change that to have a stable release and a testing release, and then people can opt in and opt out on the fly. Um, That'd be pretty cool too. I think I can do something like that, but that'll, that'll come a little bit later. Um, but again, you know, that shouldn't affect anything in terms of, like you said, like if people install it today and then want to quote-unquote update it in however many months' time, that all works. Um, the other thing I'd like to do is um, have it have an understanding of what you have and haven't done. So if for some reason you... like. You know, because it's all open source and Linux, you can get in the back end and then muck with it after the fact. So if you want to go and, mm. and customize your Samba install and put in custom shares and everything, you can do that. But if you totally screwed it up um, without having to hump through the menus and, and reinstall everything for yourself. Or the big one, I think, is if you change your storage path, if you have a major upgrade to your storage and completely change the storage path. Um, you'd have to go and reconfigure all the utilities one by one. So having it understand where everything is and just doing a, you know, just do it all again and just automate that because it's recorded somewhere what you've already done. I think that'll probably be another thing. But again, none of that will really change, um, you know, the whole process or any of the things that you have to do or break it between now and then. Um, so you know, once once that thing works, it's not going to require you to reinstall anything. It'll just uh, be an add-on on top.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I definitely wanted to drive the point home that what you just said about changing the hard drive is literally if you're changing from one drive to another, if you're moving that drive from a Pi to a server or, you know, taking it out of the case and clicking it into SATA, there is no configuration. It's all just right there. So you don't have to worry about any of that. Um, The other thing, too, that I thought was pretty neat was uh, when we were talking about, oh, you know, let's make this change to this share. And you said, all right, we'll just reinstall the Mr. Bit. I kind of went, all right, so what, what do I have to do? Do I have to reset this? Do I have to change this? Do I have to delete this? And you're like, no, just press that button and that's it. And that was, it didn't erase anything. It didn't change the configuration. There was no complicated, I didn't have to reference my install notes. I literally just went to Mr. Hit install and then it added the new directories and configured it and everything was fine. So that that's very yeah, cool well, too.
1: That's, that's the power of Ansible. So Ansible, the thing that drives the whole thing, um, you kind of, you don't, install things per se, like you're not copying stuff or you're not overriding stuff, uh, you know, in, in the traditional sense where we think about installs, where it's like, you know, I've got some software here and I copied on there and whatever was there and that I've changed, I'm now going to blast and, and lose. The whole point to Ansible is that you you define what you want the end state to be and Ansible figures out what it's got to do to get there. So, you know, like the Mr. Example, like we, you know, we had to throw in a couple extra directories that we'd missed in the, in the config all the other ones are already done so ansible looks at that and goes yeah yeah that's already there i'm going to leave it alone i'm just going to add in the stuff that changed between now and then so that's kind of the the beauty of using that ansible tool um originally when i was kind of planning how i was going to build the whole thing i was thinking about scripts in my head that i was going to write myself and then kind of had a like you're an idiot moment where it was like, no, I use this tool all day, every day at work, and it's the perfect answer. <laughs> the, the one downside to Ansible is that it, it does take a little while to install. It's kind of, there's a, the package size, for if you've got a really crappy micro SD card, that's the bit that takes all that time at the at the beginning for the install. The product itself is really lightweight. Like, it'll run off, off you know, next to nothing in terms of CPU and RAM. Uh, it just takes up a bit of disk real estate with a lot of... Um, a lot of files, sort Python based, um, so yeah, it can mm-hmm. it can be a bit heavy to to install on an older SD card. But outside of that, like um, you know, if you if you installed it on say a VM running on Unraid, it would install in you know two seconds. It's it's that quick. Um, that's kind of the difference between the yep. Raspberry Pi IO and the and a faster SSD or something. But yeah, that's that's the magic bit. That's the bit that figures out what's different and what has to change, and that's why if you, quote unquote, reinstall something. So say you've got Samba installed um, and you do something and then you rerun that installer. It's not going to blast what's there. It's just going to fix up whatever's broken, so to speak, because it it already Mm. knows what's there and it knows where it needs to get to to be working.
0: The other thing I think is going to be interesting is how Simlinks are are integrated into this because um, like, you know, I was been talking to the Recall Box team, awesome group of people, and it would be neat to have anybody who wants their project supported just to create a Simlink package. And I kind of wonder how that would change the structure of the hard drive. And, you know, once again, once the files are on the hard drive, moving directories around takes seconds. Actually, probably microseconds if you're just, you know, if you're just running a script here. Um, But I, I wonder if the end result a couple months from now, or heck, weeks, you know how people are in this community. If somebody's passionate about something, they're diving right in the deep end. But I wonder if the file structure is going to change to console software, computer software, and all of the subdirectories under there. And then when you click on Mr, it's actually creating a list of symlinks to match the Mr's folder structure. And if you click on recall box, it'll click, it'll create a list of symlinks to to mimic the recall box folder structure so that you're pointing to the exact same ROMs or CD-ROM images or whatever else. It, all you're adding is the symlinks to those folders so that that software thinks Everything's all in one directory, but it's not. It's all organized. Uh, it, you know, it, that's already the the groundwork for that's already there, yep. right? Because it's just Linux and symlinks work fine on yep. it, so that's totally doable, right? Yeah.
1: So I guess uh, explaining it to people who aren't storage nerds. So you, you can do a thing uh, on a Linux file system called a symbolic link or a symlink, uh, and the idea is that you can drop. It's kind of like a shortcut in Windows, but not that. Like a Windows shortcut, something a little bit different. But the idea is that uh, any application can look at a SimLink and think it's pointing to a folder somewhere. And you can sort of... Um, so, for example, you could have a folder that was... Or um, your, I don't know, Super Nintendo ROMs sitting high up in a directory somewhere. Or, um, you know, hypothetical future, if we want to push this to a flash flashcard that supports it or something like that. But then you also want it available to Mr. And Mr. has a... Uh, a set of rules about where it wants its uh, ROMs to live in what place and you know um, recall box or something else wants it in a in a different place maybe one's called SNES and one's called SuperNES you know they've got different rules about these sorts of things instead of having to have all your ROMs twice and waste a bunch of storage we can just use Simlinks pointers so we'll have one sort of source of truth and then pointers to the the ROM images and then that way we can satisfy a whole bunch of different systems without having to double or triple or quadruple up on the amount of storage you're using. So that's one option. Uh, I, I don't know if I'll ever get it done, but there is I've got some advanced options that I want to look at. So retroNAS is sort of a scaled down version of what I've been running for myself for years. Um, so I've got a, a custom built NAS that I that I make myself, so I don't go and do third party ones like Synology or anything like that. It runs a file system that can do uh, what's called uh, copy on write, or snapshots, they sometimes call it. So the idea is I can lie to the file system and I can copy a file somewhere else, and it's not a second copy of the file, but it looks like a second copy of the file. So it's kind of like SimLinks, but like the next level of complexity. Um, if you've ever used the the Smoke Monster ROM pack Python scripts that um, that mm-hmm. uh, Smoke Monster put out ages ago, I think that repository now is Uh, maintained by somebody else Um, it's been taken over by another another person but um, inside those scripts so for people who don't know it's a really cool utility it's a huge database pack full of checksums digital fingerprints of files so you can have you can get random files from random places they're named wrong they're in the wrong place whatever and you run this utility over them and it simply matches them against a known fingerprint renames it to the correct name and puts it in a folder. Uh, and what Smoke Monster's gone and done is he's put uh, not only the ROMs in the right place, so like say it's you know, the United States version of uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, but then there's a whole bunch of subfolders down under that that are like top 10 lists and things like that, and he'll re-put the ROM inside those lists. Now you don't have to copy the ROM twice, you don't have to waste all that space, he uses a thing called a hard link, which is similar to Simlinks and copy and write and all these sorts of things, where it's just a pointer to the file. So it looks like you've got the file in three or four places. You don't, you're only using one set of the uh, of the data. So that's kind of cool. Um, there's another thing I can do called deduplication, which is a bit of software that runs over the entire disk, finds where two files exist of the same file and turns them into one file with a pointer and does all that transparently behind the scenes. So that's a bit of software I want to put on there as well. Um, And then, of course, uh, inline compression. So some of the file systems that you can use in Linux and in RetroNAS right now will do transparent encryption behind the scenes. So if you don't want to hold all your ROMs inside zips for whatever reason, or you want to, say, store... ISO images and the tool you're using isn't CHD compatible, so you can't compress it down to a CHD format, you've got to keep it in an ISO format, you can still keep that on disk and save, you know, 20-30% disk space uh, with transparent encryption behind the scenes, so your applications and tools don't know that that's happened Um, but then if you, like if you run the deduplication tool over, say you've got I don't know, the complete Sony PlayStation set for North America, right, that's huge you run deduplication mm-hmm. over that, you save about 30%. You run compression over that, you save another 30%. So, you know, you've suddenly, you're down to a little over half of what it used to take to store that quite transparently. So that all exists. that That is now there in Linux land. I'm doing that on my home, NAS. Uh, just a matter of putting those into menu items in RetroNAS that make it easy for people to just one button click and it happens behind the scenes. That's, that's stuff that I want to have a look at. So that, I mean, that's, I've gone kind of like, off the range here a little bit, starting from your conversation. No, I, yeah, yeah. I love it. So this like shit. sim yes, simlinks, great idea, want those. Also want a whole bunch of other things. Um, definitely want to look at yeah, solving that problem of there's there's ten different groups who want to use this solution, but they've already got these like hard coded paths or whatever, you know, long-term configuration that's existed for a long time. The other thing I don't want to do is I don't want to shit on everybody else's lawn, right? Like I I want to make this as easy for them to use. So if this if there's something right. I can do in RetroNAS that makes it easier for whoever RetroPy or Recall Box or whoever these people are that want to use it, just by dropping a couple of folders and symlinks in, I'll do it. Um so you know that's that's another thing that people can do is test weird devices. Um if they're developers of those projects, great. They're, I'd really love them to to get to me get back to me. But if other people have got a little bit of know-how and can get in the back of, you know, bad or whatever and know how to fiddle with this stuff. Um, you know, let me know what I can do to make it easy to use those projects. Again, I don't use a lot of those things. Um, I don't tend to, I've got my mister and I've got my real console, so that kind of satisfies me. But, you know, if the if the emulation crowd want to do weird and wonderful things, let me know and I'll, I'll do whatever I can to try and make it work.
0: That's awesome. Now, for all the stuff that you were saying, you know, the compression and the symlinks, that'll obviously work... If people are streaming, for lack of a better word, the ROMs from RetroNAS to their device. Right. Yeah, but what about people who want to sync yeah, So, but what about people who want to sync their SD cards for their EverDrive? You know, obviously you take it out, you put it in your computer, and while I'd love an auto-sync command or something like that, you know, we could just copy it over now. But do those symlinks work on those embedded devices like EverDrives, or probably not, uh, right?
1: They can. It depends on how you copy it. So tools like rsync and a few other bits and pieces, um, even the, the command line copy command, you can tell it to treat a simlink like a simlink, so it'll it'll pick up the simlink and copy the simlink, or you can say to it, follow the simlink. Ignore that that simlink exists and treat it like a file, and in that case, it'll pick that up. So if I ever, like, hmm. in the back of my mind, I've got physical media tools as well that I want to integrate with this, right? So, for example, uh, I want to be able to plug a USB-based floppy disk into this and write raw images to the floppy disk. So if you want to create boot disks for... DOS and Windows ninety five, you can do that kind of stuff. So I'm sort of I've got skeletons for those projects working, but in the same breath, if you wanted to plug in a um, yeah a micro SD or something, uh, you know USB to micro SD adapter, plug that in and hit the make all my ROMs exist on this device. We can make sure that the real ROMs exist on the device, and it's not something that um, you know copies a sim link by accident, so the end gets confused or something. So yeah, we can we can make yeah. Sure that works. I-, I would
0: love to see that. I would love to see that in a GUI like imagine you open up your web browser you go to retro nas and then you know you go to you know rom sync or something and then it's like what are you using an everdrive Game Boy, okay you know plug in your micro sd card which drive is it you know f drive cool Hit the button and it syncs your saves, so you don't lose yep. any of that. But then also goes through and make sure the latest version of uh, the EverDrive software is on there. I mean, I would love to have one of Crix's engineers jump into RetroNas as well, because that would be a cool thing. You know, uh, have the firmware already there, sync your ROMs, and have those symlinks properly done, so that you don't need a 32 gigabyte micro SD card. You could do it with a 16 if you want, or or whatever. 64 to 32, it's probably cheaper to just buy a 32 these days anyway, but you know having all of that stuff automated it's like i mean that would be mind-blowingly easier mm-hmm. for everybody else than trying to figure out like well what roms do i have on here did i back up my saves is this the latest version of the everdrive software having all that integrated into one thing would be cool so hopefully some of Crix's buddies could uh, could assist with that as well yeah
1: sure well. uh you mentioned also like um you know getting 240p test suite on there grabbing latest firmware and all that kind of stuff so again my home nas repeating what I said before, RetroNAS is sort of a scaled down version of what I've been doing for the last 10 years at home. Um, I've got a million scheduled tasks on my home NAS that every night go out and fetch the latest version of open source Linux distributions and sync down my GOG library and, you know, grab uh, firmware updates for all the machines in my house and all the different devices and all that kind of stuff. So really, they're not difficult to do. It's just a, a text file with URLs in it or something like that. So Um, you know, it would be very possible in the future to turn RetroNAS into that as well. Um, So, you know, with given a a list of known things that are making sure that they're open source and we're complying with licenses and blah, 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 um, feeding that in there. So you've got this uh, device that just in the background ensures you've got the latest version of everything sitting on your RetroNAS and you don't have to manually go out and fetch it. Like, there's sorts of things I'd love to do too. But Yeah. yeah, like firmware for different things as well. Um, if they're things that are just simply hosted out on a, on a public website or posted in uh, hosted in GitHub, they're really easy to do. So like Swiss, for example, um, the actual binary hmm. sits out there on GitHub. Um, and I've got a script that just queries that. And if that changes, if the version number changes, it just grabs the latest version and drops it in a folder. So migrating that over to RetroNAS as well is something I'd like to do.
0: That's very cool. I, I'm wondering too, I, I spoke a little bit to Risha about this, but I'm wondering... Mr. Sync. I'm wondering if that'll actually be a help because my idea was have it randomly ping the GitHub, uh, you know, not not all at the same time because you don't want everybody running a net retro nasty to get at the exact same moment, but ping it and if there's an updates or any updates, it just automatically pulls down. And then whatever script, like I'm sure the Ypsilon would be willing to help out and have a script that's exactly like what they're normally doing, but just points to your RetroNAS so that whenever you're updating your mister, you're just copying your files over the local network, not going down across the internet. Everything's there. So if you have multiple misters, it's actually probably easier to deal with. So I'm just wondering how much time or effort that would actually save, but it's certainly worth yeah, looking Yeah, there's into. a
1: whole bunch of stuff. Um, There's there's open source stuff too, right? So the, the popular ones, are there's a bit of software called rsync. Um, so rsync understands uh, binary differences and things. It can look at two files, and if this file is 25% different, it'll just grab the 25%, bring that down and reassemble. So you've saved not only yourself the bandwidth of downloading something but the poor person hosting the thing doesn't get slammed and have everybody download the full version of something all the time in Mm. Linux land there's a bit of software called Zsync Zsync if you're American Um, and (laughs) it's uh, a similar kind of concept so you have a a Zsync file and it knows the it's the same kind of idea as BitTorrent or any of those sorts of things where it chunks a file up and it knows the fingerprints of each chunk so it's smart enough to go... So uh, Linux Nightly's, for example, right? So, you know, um, you're on the stable version of Linux. The next version is being developed now. The developers are pushing a new ISO image every 24 hours. Do you want to grab that full ISO image every 24 hours? No, you don't. You point to the Zsync file. The Zsync file understands the bits that have changed, and they can be in the middle, they can be at the end, they can be anywhere, and it just grabs the deltas, reassembles the file. So integrating that into update tools would be great, right? So, you know, Mister's just just, I'd make it sound simple. It's not it's a very complex thing. <laughs> Mr. is a large collection of these RBF files, right? And and other things. There's a whole bunch of other mm-hmm. things. But those RBF files, that's that's the binary bit of stuff that you need to to program the FPGA. If those all used ZSync as well, then pulling down a ton of those for everybody, every person that grabs it would save a lot of uh, bandwidth. I mean, the thing, I think at the moment, Mr., um, being hosted on github probably means that they're not paying for bandwidth per se but you know heaps of of options there um git as well so anything that's on github can be pulled down with git and Git's the same it will only pull down so that's how Retronas updates itself every time you run it it goes out to git checks if there's deltas and pulls down the deltas so if i've changed one line in one file hmm. you download that one line of text that's all you download that's that's all that updates so it doesn't go and grab yeah, that's whole awesome. project every time. So, and I mean, this is my background, the whole Linux sysadmin thing. Like, that's what we do. We try and minimize the time it takes for things to always be in synchronization by only grabbing the bits that change. And that's kind of the, the theory behind Ansible as well. It only does what it needs to to change. It doesn't grab the whole thing every time. So, you know, that across hundreds of different open source projects that are out there, I think would be really cool um, it's all you know this this is all me saying, hey, everybody else has to change, but um they're all possibilities. they're things that we can all work together to achieve um or potentially just you know if it's sitting on GitHub and it's a http download that can that can happen too um,
0: yeah, i mean i didn't I didn't really interpret what you just said as these are things people need to change i interpreted it completely as hey these are options that maybe might make it easier for for the teams working on this so maybe it's something you might want to look into anyway so but yeah i mean yeah so here you go you need yeah, to yeah. change <laughs> but, uh all right well this is uh this is one of the most exciting projects i've worked on in a while and it's one of those things where you know it's so easy to just glance over if if you don't understand what it is like oh it's a file share like you know I and I'm really glad that you took the time to do the whole project but also the you know this podcast with me to, to kind of talk more about it cuz I just really think it's one of these things where the more it sinks in the more people realize what it could do and that's both on the user side and on the yeah. development side uh, and I'm sure there's things that you and I aren't even thinking of that people are going to add to it at some point in the future as well. That'll be pretty exciting.
1: Absolutely. And you know, like I said, if people have ideas of stuff that they want to do, even if it's like one-off, niche, bespoke things that they don't think anybody else will care about, like let me know. Um, there's an ideas page on the GitHub where I, I throw all these ideas against the wall, and that ideas page is not necessarily must be done. That is just to like here's some interesting stuff. So you know, if people want to either feedback on just that page, and just say, you know, oh, that's useless, I'd never use it, or no, that's really great, I really want this thing, so I can get a feel of what to do next. Or if they've got new ideas that I have not thought of, because, you know, as as I feel like I know a bit about a bit, but I don't know everything about everything. So if if people have ideas on Mm. things that they want to look at, um, particularly, I mean, if you already know that an open source project exists that satisfies the requirement, that's even better than I don't have to do the research. But even if you don't, even if it's just like yeah. I've got this old bit of whatever, um, you know, I've got, I've got an old uh, Palm Pilot PDA that only synchronizes over this cable and I want it to read my email. Can you make that happen? You know, probably is the answer. There's probably a way to do silly things like that. Um, and, and, you know, it doesn't hurt to add it to the ideas list.
0: Yeah, and don't be afraid to ask questions, because there's so many times in my life I've asked developer friends, like, hey, you know, is there any way you could add that? And they're like, yeah, that that would take me one minute. Whereas, you know, there's plenty of other times where I'm like, hey, would this be easy? Like, no, Bob, not even (laughs) fucking close to easy, not even a little bit. Like, so it's worth asking the question, though, because you never know. Maybe it's just a very quick thing that might make a bunch of people's lives easier that would barely take any time to implement. So... Yeah, absolutely. You know, wherever you wherever your favorite place to chat is, start chatting about this stuff, get a bunch of people on board, and and you know, just start using it and testing it. And once again, just to to beat this to death, as long as you get a decent hard drive to start, something with enough space to grow, you could move that no matter what you decide to do with it. Or if you just decide, hey, this isn't for me, you can copy the files back off of it and then repurpose the drive. So the only thing you really need is a drive that's big enough to hold your ROMs. And that's that's the only thing you might need to purchase. But I have a feeling many of us have stuff just laying around that we could just start using it and see what yeah, it's absolutely. like. Alright man, well thank you so much uh, if anybody wants to learn more about Dan I'll leave links to Stick Freaks to your YouTube channel, social media to the first interview we did where we talked about your awesome CRT and arcade collection and uh, we'll, we'll revisit this again one day, hopefully when the world opens mm. back up I could finally get out to Australia and go visit all my friends out there and just do this in person, playing all your arcade oh, machines awesome. so, sweet well, thank you very much and uh, uh, we will follow up with a lot of retro Nas stuff as it comes. Awesome,
1: thanks Bob yeah. <laughs>